Jesus Christ. Let if you have a Bible with you this morning, please grab your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9, we'll be reading this morning, verses 15 through 22. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 15, the Word of God reads, Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Here ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, and immutable word. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning asking that you would reveal yourself to us through your word. Help us, God, to see your goodness and to see the love of your son, Jesus. We ask that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, and wills that are continually conformed to yours. Teach us, O oh God, all the riches from this glorious passage of your word. Help our minds to stay attentive to the preaching of your word. We pray all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Please be seated, beloved. Scandals, corruption, and deceit fill the headlines. Some of our political leaders, our police officers, our school teachers, and other trusted individuals are amongst those disgraced in our news. Some are movie stars, musicians, professional athletes, and other famous entertainers. And while many are shocked at the allegations about these individuals, Many of the same sins are regularly committed by many people. Many who aren't as famous as them, and so they don't make the headlines. Lying, cheating, stealing, drunkenness, drug use, fornication, adultery, sensuality, and all forms of perversion have become commonplace. You know, the depraved human heart excuses such behavior by telling itself 
everyone does it. It's really no big deal. I mean, after all, I'm only human. Have you heard someone say this to justify sin? Perhaps you yourself have uttered these very words. But we must be so careful not to deceive ourselves. Sin is a big deal. To say that it's not is to view it through a human lens that is far from perfect. We must view it through a perfect lens to understand the gravity of it. And the only perfect lens is God's view. Because he alone is perfect. And he alone is holy. And God is clear. Sin requires death. In Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20, we read, the soul who sins shall die. I would say that's a far cry from sin is no big deal. Sin is a huge problem. From the old covenant to the new covenant, God has demonstrated the cost of sin. Sin requires death. This can be traced back all the way to the Garden of Eden. Shortly after Adam and Eve disobeyed God, we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This act was not only providing physical covering, but it symbolized the first instant of atonement through sacrifice. It's foreshadowed the later sacrificial system that was established by God for the forgiveness of sins. Again, for those of you that are following along in our church's reading plan, our Bible reading plan, we're currently reading through Leviticus concurrently with Hebrews. And we've read all about this. The establishment of this sacrificial system is the focus of Leviticus chapters 1 through 7. And then on in chapter 16 in Leviticus, it describes the Day of Atonement in great detail. And for those of you that read through it, you said, wow, there's a lot going on here. What came very apparent to you and, and to me as I read through it again was that there was a lot of blood involved. Chapter 17 of Leviticus, God explains why. In Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, God says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Now, when we think of that and we understand that, it helps us to make some sense of when God's judgment rained down on Egypt during the first Passover. Hold your place here in Hebrews chapter 9 and flip back to the second book of the Bible, Exodus. Specifically, Exodus chapter 11. Give you a moment to turn to Exodus chapter 11. Now, as you do, we're going to see here God describing the judgment that he is bringing upon Egypt. Exodus chapter 11, I'll be reading from verse 4 through verse 6. 
In Exodus chapter 11, verse 4, we read, So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all of the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all of the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again." Right here, God is speaking about the judgment that is about to fall on an unbelieving nation. But there were some houses into which the angel of death had no access. And why? God had given instruction, instruction that was to be carefully and accurately followed by his people. So jump down to chapter 12 of Exodus. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 3, I'll read through verse 13. This is God speaking to Moses and Aaron here. Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 3. God says, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbors shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head and its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You know, there early on in the scriptures, we have that account of the first Passover. But one of the most eternally important themes, perhaps the, the greatest theme in all of scripture, is the shed blood of the sacrificial substitute. The Apostle Paul puts an exclamation point on this when he states in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, of speaking about Christ, he says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Paul's emphasis is that the wrath of God, the divine judgment of God, 
was quenched by the shedding of Jesus' blood on the cross. Did you hear that? The judgment of God. The, the wrath of God being stored up against all sinners has been fully satisfied by the shedding of Jesus' blood on the cross for all who receive this by faith. You know, Charles Spurgeon said of this, he rejoiced in this truth and said, quote, Oh, how precious is this blood-red shield! My soul, cower thou down under it when the darts of hell are flying. This is the chariot, the covering whereof is purple. Let the storm come and the deluge rise. Let even the fiery hail descend. Beneath that crimson pavilion my soul must rest secure. For what can touch me? when I am covered with his precious blood, end quote. Like Spurgeon, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement should cause all of us to rejoice. It is in substitutionary atonement that an innocent person dies and sheds his blood in place of guilty men and guilty women, and in doing so, that endures their penalty and obtains for them a forgiveness of sins. You know, in all of history, there's only one person that can do that. There's only one who was innocent in all of human history, who can do it and who has done it, and who has done this work, but our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the author of Hebrews has already spoken about Christ's sacrifice in chapter 9. If you are still in Exodus, flip back over to our passage in Hebrews chapter 9. In chapter 9, as we have looked at previously, in verse 12, the author has already spoken about this. Speaking of Christ in Hebrews 9.12, he said, that Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. To which all of God's people say, Amen. Hallelujah. Two verses down from there in Hebrews 9.14, he then argues how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Beloved, it was the blood of Christ, the cost for our sin. Why? Because sin is a big deal. It requires death. It requires the shedding of blood. Listen to how one scholar put it. He said, quote, Human sin and rebellion will never be seen for what it is or register fully in our hearts until we set over against the transcendent holiness of God against whom it is or perpetrated. Excuse me. Once you see and sense the beauty of God's infinite righteousness, glory, and majesty, you will readily understand the ugliness of human transgression and unbelief and idolatry. 
And only when both of these truths are embraced and understood will you see how reasonable and necessary is the shedding of blood to obtain the forgiveness of sins, end quote. You know, the author of Hebrews expounds on this very idea in our passage this morning. Jump ahead in our passage down to verses 18 through 22, and you'll see where he expounds on this. I'll read these verses to us, starting in verse 18 of chapter 9. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, there's five verses here. And in those five verses, the noun blood appears six times. The author in this passage here explains that during the time of the first or the old covenant that God established with Moses and Israel, that everything was cleansed with blood. These verses recount the inauguration of the old covenant when it was first given through Moses and the author cites here Exodus chapter 24 verse 8 in verse 20 of our text. You know, it's in Exodus 24 that God tells Moses about the law and, and, how to, and Moses again goes to the people and has them recite the law. And in response to reciting the law, the people say this. They say, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. How does that sit with you? Those of you that are believers in Jesus Christ this morning that are called to walk in holiness and righteousness, how does that statement sit with you? All of the words of the Lord we will do. Guess what? They sinned. They did not uphold their part. So in preparation, we see what Moses does in Exodus chapter 24 and verses 6 through 8. It says, Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient and Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Blood had to be spilt. The old covenant was inaugurated with blood. The book of the law was sprinkled with blood. The people themselves were sprinkled with blood. The tabernacle and all the furniture and the many accessories were sprinkled with blood. Blood was dripping from everywhere. This was a way of teaching them and teaching us as well that you cannot approach God 
You cannot worship him or have fellowship with him until the penalty for human sin has been paid and the justice of God has been satisfied. All of that blood was a reminder that sin requires death. Listen to what R. Ken Hughes says here. He says, quote, During the thousand plus years of the old covenant, there were more than a million animal sacrifices. So considering that each bull's sacrifice spilled a gallon or two of blood, and each goat a quart, the old covenant truly rested on a sea of blood. During the Passover, for example, a trough was constructed from the temple down into the Kidron Valley for the disposal of blood, a sacrificial plumbing system. Why the perpetual sea of blood? For one main reason, to teach that sin demands the shedding of blood, end quote. The abundance of blood. By the way, if you are visiting here this morning, you're like, what is up with the blood? Why are we saying blood, 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 blood? All of the abundance of blood served as a constant reminder that sin demands death. It screamed of the seriousness of sin. It demanded that one understands the costliness of forgiveness those under the old covenant who came to worship God had a keen awareness about the gravity of sin. Sin requires death. All the blood reminded them of that. We see all this summed up by our author in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, when he says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. He does say almost everything. There were a couple of exceptions. And perhaps one of the most obvious ones was the concession made for the poor Israelite who simply didn't have enough money to purchase a lamb or a goat that they could buy a pair of turtle doves or pigeons, but if they still didn't have the resources for those, they could bring a portion of flour or of wheat as a sin offering in the place of an animal or blood sacrifice. You know, there were a few other uh, exceptions as well. But the point still stood, as the author of Hebrews points to, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You know, it's that specifically that made Abel's sacrifice better than Cain's. Cain brought the work of his hands, but Abel brought the blood of a sacrifice. And as you remember and recall, he alone was received. Why? Simply because of what we're talking about. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The Bible is very clear that once we have sinned against God, there is no way for the sin to be put away except by the blood, by the shedding of blood. You know, the price of redemption 
is a price that we cannot pay ourselves and yet survive. We need someone else to pay for it. We need a substitute, a substitute who has the power of eternal life. And you know who that substitute is. Jesus Christ is the true substitute who came to bring true forgiveness of sins. When he instituted the sacrament of the Lord's Supper on the night of his arrest, Jesus made an explicit link between his own death and the blood that Moses sprinkled on the people under the first covenant. Jesus holding up the cup, he said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, the blood that Moses sprinkled represented Christ's precious blood. This is my blood of the covenant, Jesus said. And it is this blood that he applies to cleanse those who come to him in faith. The basis of our acceptance of God and the removal of our guilt are completely founded in the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ for sinners. Sinners. Lawbreakers are redeemed by Christ's shed blood. You know, it's with the importance of Christ's blood as the focus here in chapter 9 of Hebrews that the author revisits a topic that he first mentioned back in chapter 8. Back a page, maybe in your Bibles, in verse 6 of chapter 8, the author speaks of Jesus as mediating a better covenant. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, he says, But as it is, Christ obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. And fast forward to our passage before us this morning, verse 15 of chapter 9. The author now expounds on that. As a matter of fact, this is the focal point of this chapter. This begins this new paragraph in what he has written, verse 15 of chapter 9. He writes, therefore, speaking of Jesus, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You know, it's the, the new covenant that has the closest connection with God's covenant with Abraham. It's the new covenant that secures the eternal inheritance that God promised to Abraham, saying, I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And Abraham's descendants, those are spiritual descendants. The Apostle Paul points this out in Galatians, that they are those that, like Abraham, they trust in God. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, we read, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So what makes the new covenant new is that Christ has come and achieved our salvation through his shed blood. The anticipated Christ has come. It has achieved 
the promise that was set forward through the prophet Jeremiah, that Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant, recalling what God spoke through the prophet and promised through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, you should be becoming very familiar with this as this promise is fulfilled in Christ. Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. <laughs> Jesus is spoken of as the mediator of this new covenant. Uh, a mediator's job is to arbitrate in order to bring two parties together. And as mediator, the two parties that Christ mediates is on one side the holy God and the other side sinful man. It is Christ's job as mediator that ensures that his people receive the promised eternal inheritance. That is the author's point here. That as mediator of the new covenant, Jesus' work guarantees that those who are called receive the promised eternal inheritance. It is Christ's very own blood that serves as the means of arbitration. This means that in order for Christ to serve as the mediator, he had to first die. To be the mediator. Jesus freely offered his life in obedience to God and became the mediator of the new covenant. And it is only Jesus who is able to stand between a holy God and a sinful people to serve as mediator. The author of Hebrews points out here in verse 15 that the death of Christ, meaning his blood, that it's redeemed those who under the old covenant looked forward to that day. Those who faithfully practiced what God had instituted for them. What does that mean? Does it mean that it looked back to those under the old covenant? It means that Jesus' shed blood is both retroactive and proactive in bringing forgiveness of sins. It says, all who are called of God, both prior to the coming of Christ and those afterward, are saved collectively by the blood of Christ. Those who are called. We know Paul the Apostle says in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, that those whom he has predestined, he has also called. And those whom he has called, he has also justified. And those whom he justified, he also 
glorified the plan and purpose of God to save a people for himself. The shed blood of Jesus is retroactive in the sense that it reaches all the way back to those who lived before the coming of Christ. All those who faithfully offered sacrifices under the old covenant. Sacrifices which found their value not in themselves, but in the once for all sacrifice of Christ to which they all pointed They were saved by the retroactive power of Christ's blood. means Old Testament believers were redeemed from sin by sin, by the cross in anticipation. But the blood of Christ is also proactive. Every one of us who now believes the gospel are saved by the proactive power of Christ's blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary. We have been purchased by the blood. This is the way we read about the church of God, God's people in Acts chapter 28, 20, sorry, Acts 20 verse 28. We read that they are the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. All who are called by God, whether Old Testament believers or those saved after the coming of Christ, are saved in the same way through the shed blood of Christ. And to help us understand the importance of Christ's death, specifically his shed blood, the author of Hebrews utilizes an argument with terms that we can readily understand. Look at your Bibles in verses verses 16 and 17 in Hebrews chapter 9. He says, For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Now, many of us here are probably familiar with a last will and testament. I mean, if you came to our home and our bedroom and our closet on the floor in this little teeny fire safe is tucked away a document. That on that document it says it is the last will and testament of Robert and Michelle Jewett. Now that document was written by lawyers and it has all that legal ease language in it, making it a legal and, and binding document. And in it, it clearly lays out What is to be done with our possessions once we are dead? Now, our eldest is with us this morning visiting, and I'm sorry, Mariah, but it doesn't just have your name in there and says everything just goes to you as the eldest. First thing it notes in it is that a certain percentage of our estate is to go to the church that we are members of upon our death. But right after that, is that our, our three children become the legal heirs of whatever remains in our estate when we have gone to be with the Lord. But the interesting part about that document is that it's of no benefit to any of the listed beneficiaries as long as my wife and I are living, which now that I said what I said, maybe put a target on my back. It's only upon our death that what is written in those documents takes effect. 
And hopefully you are well aware of what I've just described, meaning you have your affairs in order, and I've also put together a will. So think about your will, or think about the one I described of my will. There's nothing in that will that any of the listed beneficiaries listed can do to dictate what they get. It's not up to them. That decision is entirely up to the one who creates the will, known as the testator. There's also, as I mentioned earlier, nothing that any of those beneficiaries could do to claim their inheritance until the person who made it has died. So why do I mention all of this? Because the author of Hebrews does. This is the point he is making in verses 16 and 17. He's saying in a, in a sort of way that God has written up his will and that he alone decides who gets what. And spoiler alert, if you are a child of God, by faith in Jesus Christ, you are an heir of all that he has. Let that go. But as with any will, the beneficiaries do not receive their inheritance until the one who created it has died. Well, problem, God cannot die. He is eternal. And so Jesus, the second person of our triune God, took on flesh and became a man so that in his humanity he could die. And God's heirs could take possession of their inheritance. We are joined to Christ in faith. And therefore, we are made heirs of this great inheritance. You know, this connects with one of the, the greatest messages of the book of Hebrews. That in Christ, we have privileges of membership in God's family. And as heirs with Christ, we inherit all the blessings that he has in God. The Apostle Paul spoke of this in Romans chapter 8, in verses 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul writes, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And then in that opening of his letter to the Ephesian believers in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, the Apostle Paul also writes, In him, speaking of Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were with the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Beloved, this is absolutely glorious news that all who repent and believe in the gospel are heirs of God. And that the Holy Spirit is the executor of the will. He is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. But think of all the treasures 
that we enjoy now because of Christ's death. Forgiveness. Not partial forgiveness. Not a human forgiveness where someone says, I forgive you, but I never want to see you again. By the way, that is not forgiveness. But a forgiveness says your sins are covered. You can have full and complete fellowship with me. Through the gospel and the death of Christ, we also have peace. We sang it earlier. We were once enemies of God. But we have come and been given peace, been reconciled to him, that we have peace with God and now friends of God. We have purpose. Purpose to glorify God with our lives, that we have been cleansed and purified, that our consciences have been purified so we can serve the living God. All of these things we experience now. But as you know, it gets way better when we pass, when we die. It is upon our death that we inherit Christ's resurrection life. That we inherit a, a place in heaven that he's gone before us to prepare. That we have a home with God that remains forever. And we will also inherit the perfect holiness of God. No more sin. No more sorrow. Think of your best efforts trying to please God and honor him at the same time, you've got stuff down in your heart that is defiling that at the same moment. But in heaven, there will be no more of that. It will all be gone, and everything will be perfectly holy. Listen to the way the Apostle John puts it in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Praise God. Jesus died, leaving the greatest inheritance ever. Did you ever have a family member who stiffed you in their will? Didn't even mention you? Or maybe put your name there and said, you get nothing. Don't mope, don't be sad. Because fellow saint, you have the greatest inheritance that ever could be left for anybody. And it is this Jesus who died so that we could have it, but he also lives to mediate his will. And so the point from our text this morning is this. Sin is a big deal. Sin requires death. And God has sent his son, to lay down his life by shedding his blood for all who believe in him. And Jesus calls you to repent, to turn from your rebellion against God and to turn towards God. And he calls you to believe, to believe in him as the one that can save you from your sins by offering complete forgiveness through his priceless blood. You know, Jesus warned, he said, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return 
for his soul. You must have the cleansing of Christ's blood, which guarantees forgiveness of your sins. So if you have not done so, you are to turn to Christ now. You are to trust in him alone and turn away from all things of this world and come to Jesus. He is the only mediator between man and God. Nobody else stands between you and a holy God who is able to reconcile you to God. Only Jesus. Sin is a huge problem. It demands death. But Christ has given his life to meet its demands. Every person who repents and believes has been gifted with a new heart and with God's own spirit. They are given newness of life. The old man is buried with Christ and the new man is alive in the fullness of Christ. And so I ask you, beloved, fellow Christian, what troubles you? What robs you of the joy of your salvation? Fill in the blank. And the answer is to look again. Look again to the cross of Calvary where the blood of Christ was spilt for you. And let that image remind you once again of what matters most. You are loved by the God of the universe who would send his only son to die in your place. And putting faith in him, you are now part of his family with a guaranteed inheritance. And so may your countenance be lifted up. You are a child of God. But perhaps you are here this morning and you do not believe the gospel. You reject everything you hear about the love of God and the sacrifice of Jesus. And you think, I I'm fine. But let me be the first to tell you this morning that you are tragically wrong. And I don't say that smugly. I say that with grief. That you are tragically wrong. If there was any other way for you to be reconciled to God, then God would not have had to send his son to die upon Calvary. There is no other way. Jesus is the only way. He is your only hope. And so do not delay in trusting in him, in submitting to his lordship. There is forgiveness. There is hope and there is life in Christ alone. Before I close in prayer this morning, let's go ahead and bow our heads and let's think upon what we have learned from God's word this morning. Father, we are reminded once again of the riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. You have lavished upon us blessing on top of blessing through the blood of Christ. Oh God, thank you for forgiveness of sins. Thank you for new life, for eternal life. 
Thank you for the work of Jesus as our mediator who reconciles us back to you and secures our eternal inheritance. Father, we thank you for the blessings that we have already received and look forward to the fullness of them when we are with you forever in heaven. We ask that you would save others who are here today and have yet to repent and believe the gospel. They would do so today. That you would grant them the gift of repentance and faith and bless them with forgiveness of sins and newness of life. We pray all these things in the wonderful name of your Son. Beloved, stir up love and good works with one another. Let's enjoy a time of fellowship together out on the back patio.